Good morning. You know it's a good morning when the announcement guy gets applause. What is that about? I don't know. Uh, we are so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Janice, and we are in the middle of a series we're calling Inconvenient. And I just can't say enough about what's going on tonight. I don't know if you noticed over here in the corner, that is our very classy baptismal stock tank. And we're going to roll that out tonight and baptize seven people. But what you need to know is four of those people made their salvation experience last Sunday right up here. In an inconvenient series, people decided, made that inconvenient decision that God had been drawing them into last week. And so we're excited to just celebrate that tonight. Please come back. You're not going to want to miss that. And if you're afraid of missing out, right, little FOMO, you know that you need to be baptized or you're just feeling that call. Uh, please talk to somebody. We'll get you in tonight. We've got lots of towels. Lots of water. It's going, to, it's going to be a good time. All right, folks, we are in the middle of inconvenient. And um, today I want to talk about the fact that sometimes the best things in our life can be inconvenient. Now, inconvenient as a, a definition are the difficulties, the things that make you uncomfortable, the things that kind of get in the way of, uh, you know, the progress that you're on in life. But do you know, and you do know this because I'm going to tell you in a moment, and I bet you're going to identify some of the best qualities you have, things that you've learned, things that you've inherited, things that you've just were born with can become inconvenient. Some of you discovered after a period of time that you turned out to be over six feet tall. Now, sometimes that's fun. Sometimes that's inconvenient if the door frame is too low or if everybody just wants you to get the tallest things off of the shelf all the time. Maybe you were born into a family that uh, revered music and decided that you as a small child should take piano lessons for, you know, 10 years of your childhood. And you found that to be inconvenient. And even more inconveniently, now you have skills. And people ask you to play at weddings that you don't want to go to. Or whatever. You know what I mean? You got that. Um, some of you, maybe you have money. Maybe you inherited money. And that can be convenient and inconvenient. You ever notice that lottery winners like hide? You know, because when you have something other people want, they come knocking and now you're, you know, dealing with that. That's no fun at all. All right. Uh, for some of you, it's things that you've learned over time. Those of you with medical knowledge and now everybody in your family, Aunt Susie and Uncle Bob and Cousin Eddie, everybody wants information before they go to the ER and you've got information that can be inconvenient. Bless you if you have been generous with the gifts and the talents and the skills that you have acquired over time. Well, folks, I want you to know that Valentine's Day is coming up. And uh, can you believe it? It's this week. And if you're single and, and hoping to be married, I bet you're aiming high. I bet you hope that you're going to marry somebody who is attractive, somebody who is good looking, and, and, you know, aim high. All of us should, right? But here's the fact that we're going to discover in this story that we're going to get into today is that sometimes even being attractive can be inconvenient. And we're going to find that in our story this morning. If you brought your Bibles or your devices, you can turn to Genesis chapter 26. That's where we're going to find our uh, passage today that we're going to be working out of. If you don't, you're welcome to follow along behind. Um, and we're just going to learn how much trouble attractiveness can turn out to be even in marriage. Are you ready? Let's go. Now, there was a famine in the land. 
besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I will tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute. We're going to get into the rest of the story in a little bit, but I just feel like there's, there's something here. As I was really uh, just tearing into this and trying to hear what God wanted me to say to you, I am convinced that somebody here needs to hear this today. God saying, stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. Maybe you are in a famine at work, Maybe you are feeling like you're in a famine in your life, in your marriage, and God is speaking to you, and he's saying, stay here for a little bit. Now, I must give a caveat to this message, and I have wrestled with it. Uh, I, I, I wrestled with knowing God wanted me to speak this, and yet knowing and, and feeling desperate that it not be taken out of context. So hear me say this. From the depth of my heart, if you find yourself in an abusive relationship where you know you are being threatened with bodily harm, you have been before and you are presently, I do not believe that this is God's message to you to stay there. If you have any questions about that at all, please come and speak to me or um, our other pastor. He'll be back this afternoon for meetings and tonight. I don't want you to hear that message. However, there are some of you in here who are simply in a famine. You're simply in a famine. A famine is a dry time. A famine is a place where you are starving. A famine is a, is a thing that happens when you know that your resources are running low. And famines happened all the time in the Old Testament. The patriarchs dealt with them. This dry season of life where they were, were caused because famines move us. Famines move you to a place of plenty when you feel that things are running out over here. And sometimes that's, we, we want to go somewhere just to escape. We want relief from this. And Egypt was the hot spot to go to. Egypt was the metropolis. Egypt was a fertile land. And so for these patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who grew up in the deserts, and that's the land where God had them for a time, they, whenever things got really rough, they would run to Egypt. And sometimes God let them go there, but generally speaking, that ended up being a place of bondage. All right. And so in this case, he's on his way to Egypt and, uh, and God stops him short and says, wait a minute, I want you to go somewhere else. All right. And so all of these, all of these patriarchs face these seasons of dryness. And I'm telling you that in a season of dryness, we are often tempted to fill that, to satiate that thirst with something other than God with something other than God. That, those seasons of dryness, that's when we feel that temptation. And we want to go somewhere to just get that initial relief. And God was saying, nope, camp right here. I want you to stay in this place for a time. I would suggest to you that in marriage, people often seek relief from the difficult season that they are in. 
We're so anxious to get married. We're so anxious to have that, that special someone in her life. You know, I, I work with college students a fair bit, you know, the ones who come to our house for mooching off the pastor, and, and I, I can hear the longing, you know, that they would love to have that plus one in their life. But those of you who are married know that sometimes being married is inconvenient. You like the plus one, but sometimes you just want to do what you want to do. But no, you have to decide together which ding-dong movie you're going to see and which restaurant you're going to eat at and what you're really going to have for supper and where you're going to live. And, and you make those corporate decisions together when, frankly, if you were by yourself, you could do it all on your own. Right? Sometimes marriage is inconvenient as much as we want it. And, um, and, and it's important. You have to report to someone. You share a bank account. You share passcodes. You save a lot of things. And I'm telling you that there are sometimes when you get into a marriage and you let that dryness settle in and you don't take care of that and it will lead you to trying to fill that with something other than God. All right? And or you may just find yourself wanting out. You just want relief. Many of the people that we counsel who are struggling in a marriage, sometimes they have no other answer in their mind except I want out. And I'm always like, can you just think about where life is going to be? If you get out, can you just think about where life is going to be in 10 years? I don't care about 10 years. I care about tomorrow. No, no. Think about where you're going to be in 10 years. Think about what Christmas is going to be like. You know what I mean? There's more at stake here than, than just getting that initial bit of relief. All right? And yet, Isaac, that's exactly what he's seeking. He's seeking relief from this famine in the land. And he's preparing himself for the shortage of resources for himself and his entire family. And God stops him up short. So I don't know what your desert is this morning. I don't know what you identify as I'm speaking and where you hear that in your heart and what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. But I know that somebody here needs to hear God say this. Settle down. And trust me, right here. Don't run to the easy place. Don't run away from the scary place. Don't run away from this place that makes you anxious, where you're not sure. Because I gave you a promise that I would be with you, and I will bless you. So if I call you there, I can take care of you there. If God has called you somewhere, lean on him and learn to trust him in that place. If I told you to go there and if I promise something, I will see it through. That's what I believe God is telling somebody here this morning. Now let's move on to the weird part of the story. Some of you know. Some of you went to Sunday school and you know exactly where this is going. Are you ready? Verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, ah, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. Folks, I don't know if you've ever done that, but do not ever pass off your wife as your sister. Can that, you know what I mean? It is Valentine's Day for Pete's sake. Don't ever pass off your wife as your sister. And he, here's why. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. There are a few women in scripture that are noted for their beauty, and Rebecca is one of them, and so was Isaac's mother, so her mother-in-law also. All right, and when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca, and Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, 
she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of my men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife will surely be put to death. So Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord had blessed him. And the man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. Now, the moral of this story is most definitely not pass your wife off as your sister and you will get wealthy. That is, that, that is not that you will get rich. No, that is not the, the thing that we're working on here. As a woman, one of the things I find particularly interesting about this passage is how old Rebecca must have been. We don't know how old she was. We do know Isaac's age, that he did not marry Rebecca until he was 40 years old. So we don't know how old she was. But when she came, uh, they were together for 20 years and experienced infertility. There was no babies for 20 years. And then they only had two. Uh, Rebecca has twins. All right, she has Jacob and Esau, and there's lots more to that story. But scholars believe that by the time of this particular event, chronologically in Scripture, and they have other supporting documents to pull that together, they believe that she has been married perhaps 35 years. Okay, so, you know, I don't know how old she is, but I'm thinking she's in her 50s, maybe, you know, something like that. And that the twins are at least 15 years old. Now, here's the weird part. If, if, well, there's lots of weirdness there, but anyway, if, if the two of them show up with twin boys that are 15 years old by themselves and a donkey, I'm thinking it's hard to pass her off as a sister. I'm thinking it's a little weird. What you need to recognize is that Abraham had grown to be much more than the immediate family. He had an entire entourage. He had grown into almost a small nation, right? So there's a ton of people involved in this, slaves and servants and, and people who are, I shouldn't have used the word slave, we don't know that. Lots of servants and people who were along uh, with this system. And so chances are that Isaac has the same thing. He has an entourage of people. Obviously, Rebecca is going to be a woman of note. I'm sure that she's like in the, in the premier tent. I don't know. So it's obvious that she's somebody important. Who knows if the twin boys just look like they were farmhands. I don't really know. But, but there's a crowd of people here. And so he's able to pass her off as his sister until he's caught caressing her. Some uh, versions, I don't know what version you're using, will use the word sporting, which I think is fun. He was sporting with his wife uh, because the root word here refers to laughter or playing. I don't know if he was tickling her or what, but whatever he was doing was not a sister move. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Whatever he was doing gave it away, and he was within view of, the, uh, of Abimelech's little palace tent or whatever it was that he was living in. And so Abimelech is mad. He is like, what? did you notice it? What do you bring upon us? I'm like, dude, they'd do anything to you. Well, here's the crazy part about the pagan people of the day. The pagans were polytheistic. They aren't just monotheistic. So it's not whether or not they believed in Israel's God. The point is they had their gods. And if the Hebrew people show up with their God, they don't want to tick that God off either. So while fornication might have been a taboo and maybe a little sin, adultery was a big deal. 
And they were indignant at the idea that they had almost stumbled into this offense or allowed this to happen because they knew that this could possibly bring down the wrath of a Hebrew God on the whole group of people. And so they're, they're ticked off about that, and they, um, and they bring it up to Isaac. And, and, and again, just the fact that they didn't know about it was not enough. Ignorance of her marital state was not an appropriate defense. Now, I don't know if you have ever um, pretended that you weren't married to the person you were married to. I have an aunt um, who... Um, was married in the 50s, all right? So, so, and the reason I tell you that, this is an important fact. Did you know that pantyhose, or at least the elastic that made pantyhose what they were, wasn't invented until 1959, all right? Prior to that time, in the early part of the days when people were wearing stockings, there was no elasticity to that. So the only way a woman could keep stockings up was with little belts called a garter belt. Don't think lingerie, just it was a utilitarian sort of thing, okay? Stay with me. If you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Now, my aunt was a beautiful woman. Uh, she kind of looked like Lucille Ball. She was always put together, always had bright lipstick on, and she told me the story that when she was newly pregnant, newly married, and then fully pregnant, she was probably eight months along, she and my uncle were walking across the street in a busy, um, a, a busy town. And uh, she said, and I could tell that my garter belt had slipped over my big belly. And now I'm walking and my stockings are creeping down with every step that she's taking in her lovely high heel shoes. And uh, she said, and sure enough, I get to the middle of the street, and they're all the way at my ankles. And I said, what did my uncle do? She said, he kept on walking like he did not know me. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? He left you back there? I was aghast. Now, he was young and dumb, and he has since recovered and lived you know, with her the rest of his life. But um, I've never forgotten that story. I'm like... Are you kidding me? If my husband had like left me in the middle of the road, I mean, it would have taken a while for him to recover from that. I don't really know. I'm just saying, I don't know if you've ever pretended that your spouse wasn't yours, but I would suggest to you that Isaac's motivation is common to all of us. When we are embarrassed by our spouse or begin to disrespect them in any way, and I'm not saying that's what Isaac was doing, but stay with me. When we are embarrassed by them or begin to disrespect something they're doing, we inherently pull back. We inherently pull back. That's one of the inconveniences of marriage, right? You get married thinking somebody is so great and you're just going to love everything about them forever. And then after a while, you find out that they do things that annoy you. And it's inconvenient to stay with somebody that annoys you. And, and our response in, in, in those moments is to save face. The reason we pull back is to, to distance ourselves from that so that they can be embarrassed, but I'm over here and I'm trying to save face. But I'm telling you that when I begin to take action that protects me instead of us, I weaken the marriage. When I begin to take action that protects me instead of us, I weaken the marriage. I'm going to give you one more uh, example, and I hope this will be all right. Um, many, many years ago, my husband got his first tattoo. Uh, unfortunately, he was a preacher at the time, and his congregation was not in full support. Can I say that? 
So um, anyway, uh, it caused a little bit of a ruckus. And um, I'll never forget coming back to the congregation after that kind of had hit the fan. And people walked up to me, who still to this day, I don't have a tattoo, and they greeted me so warmly, almost over-greeted me, as they brushed past him and gave him the cold shoulder. And I was indignant. I felt really fierce about that. Don't you go treating me some way just because I don't have the mark on me and he does. You think I wasn't standing there watching him get it? I mean, come on. Don't you, we are one person here. So don't you be splitting us up in some weird way to th- show solidarity with me. You know what I mean? I mean, I, and I wasn't even that excited about him getting it. But, but once he had it, doggone it, we're, we're in this thing together. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I thought he was designing like stationary. I didn't know he was like drawing what he was going to put on his arm. It was a crown of thorns for Pete's sake, but whatever. Uh, you know, it was just one of those moments when I felt so... Now listen to me. I'm not trying to put myself up here because there have been many, many, many times I have not had his back. There have been many, many times when I did not do things for us and I did things to protect myself. And, and I'm convicted about that because I know that that weakens the union. It weakens the union. We want to know that somebody will claim us. Somebody will stand up for us. Somebody will protect us. And Isaac fails here. He fails in a big way. But we all get his motivation. He's there to save his own skin. And in spite of God's promise to be with him and to take care of him, he begins to lie and deceive in order to save himself. So here's my question for you this morning. Where have you found yourself doubting God's care, and have been looking for ways to build a wall around your heart so that you don't feel pain? Where have you put unfounded energy into protecting yourself? Maybe in a land of opportunity, maybe even a pagan land, but you have become so desperate to save yourself that you aren't even honest about yourself because you're so busy trying to save that. Believe it or not, honesty is a big, big deal. People have always cared about honesty. I studied American history for a long time because I used to teach it, and I am intrigued by American politics and our attachment to honesty. Now, I'm not saying anything about our current administration and everything that's going on. I'm just saying throughout the course of American history, honesty has been a big deal. You can be the most corrupt politician in the world. You can make all kinds of crazy arms deals. You can do all kinds of things that people agree with or don't don't agree with, but I'll tell you what, the minute you lie about it, they will take you down. They will fu- you, you can get impeached for lying faster than you get impeached for doing something else that people believe is corrupt. Because we hate to be lied to. We hate that with a passion, don't we? Because if you lie to me, and what's worse, if I fall for it, now I feel stupid. Now I feel gullible. I feel bad that I, I got... Mm, I, that I even believed that, right? And so people have always been, been harsh on this idea of deceit, okay? And so if you lie, people will call you on it. I promise you they will every single time. It's, it's offensive to feel deceived. So when people begin to protect themselves in their relationships, here's what they begin to do. They begin to uncouple in various places where they create distance, 
Think about it this way. If you feel insecure about the finances with you and your spouse, you might be tempted to go open another account. Instead of working out your, your stuff together, instead of working on a budget together, you just uncouple right there and you're like, you take care of this, I'll take care of that, and we'll call it even. Right? That's the beginning of an uncoupling. You can argue with me about it later if you want. Okay? Um, if you feel a loss of trust in the other person, you may find yourself changing passcodes. You may find yourself checking someone else's email or worrying about whether or not they're checking yours and you're starting to keep things more private from them. If your partner embarrasses you in public, maybe you roll your eyes. It's your way of disrespecting. It's your way of saving yourself. It's the way of letting other people around you know that you weren't in on that. You didn't say that. If you lose respect for your spouse, you might find yourself putting that other person down, making public jokes about them to make yourself look better, and in general, distancing yourself in a way to protect your own reputation. Guess what, folks? Marriage can be inconvenient. That's too bad. It just is. The fact is that when we begin to get irritated with our spouse, we often think that we have just suddenly seen the light. Oh, I never knew that about him. And now here we are. And this is who they turned out to be. Guess what? We need to come to terms with the fact that there is something about that person and even the thing that irritates us that we were initially attracted to. And the chances of you repeating that and being attracted to somebody that does the exact same thing is really high. Really, really high. Because what's, what's really going on is you're attracted to that, right? How about this? Sometimes the very humor that drew you into your partner is now incredibly annoying. Have you ever noticed somebody who is super, super funny and they can make the crowd laugh but their spouse just sits there? They are, they're, they've, like, they've heard every joke. They are so annoyed. I mean, that person's got everybody else in stitches, and they're just like, whatever. I mean, you know what I mean? But clearly, they were, at one point, they were enamored by it. Maybe you're attracted to that fiscal conservative who has enough money to take you out to Tony's all the time. But now you're married to them, and you're annoyed by how obsessive they are about the bank account. Why do you think they got to be so financially well off they could take you to Tony's all the time? Because they're a fiscal conservative. There are things that go with that, right? All right. Maybe you loved your spouse's quiet demeanor and you thought they were such a good listener, but now you crave conversation and they drive you crazy because they got nothing to say. Chances are you're attracted to that. I, I get it. It can be inconvenient to recognize that the very things you once enjoyed about your spouse has become an irritant. But you know what? The issue isn't whether or not your spouse is going to be annoying. It's how we honor our spouses in spite of their traits. How do we stand up for them and think of ourselves as us instead of me, right? You picked them. You chose them. You pick someone as they are and you stay with them as they become. And they do the same thing. You pick them as they are, but you can't. In, a, a great marriage is not based on your ability to predict what somebody's going to be like in seven years or in 37. A great marriage is based on how you treat people as they become who they are at 37 years in. Right? It's not about whether or not you're going to predict that right. So a great marriage is based on a willingness to discipline yourself, to honor and respect that person that you chose. Love is the icing on the cake that's produced by long-term honor and respect. So inconvenience erodes respect, and a loss of respect 
will ruin a marriage. Well, guess what? Isaac found his wife's beauty inconvenient. And he's a perfect example of somebody who fails to give her the honor that she deserved. For Pete's sake, the guy says, why did you say she is my sister? And he said, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. So here's how it started. Fear. Fear will drive you to make really poor choices towards your spouse. That fear that makes you want to pull back and protect yourself. All right? He's not annoyed or bored or irritated by her beauty. He's just a chicken. He is just a chicken. And seriously, this behavior is absolutely cowardly. And in his fear, are you with me? He repeats the past. He repeats the past. So here's three things that I've discovered in, the, in this story that I really believe God wants me to get across to you. Now, let me tell you this. In Scripture, we rarely can use... Uh, examples of marriage as training for how to do it. I defy you to find a good marriage in the Bible. Good luck if you're looking for that. But we can find all kinds of things you shouldn't do. So think of these things that I'm going to mention to you as not things you're going to repeat, but mm, tips to help you make better decisions. Number one, when we are scared, we tend to repeat the past. When we are scared, we tend to repeat the past. Now, Isaac is, this sister thing is not a new idea for him. He got this from his daddy. His daddy, Abraham, is the first person to do this because Abraham passes off his wife, Sarah, who is known to be beautiful by many, many documents. Uh, he passes her off as his sister two different times. Chapter 12, go read it. In chapter 20, you'll get a different account in the very same place, in Gerar, with a man named Abimelech. We are very certain it's not the same Abimelech given the amount of time that passed, but Abimelech appears to be a term a little bit like Pharaoh or Caesar. It applies to whoever the supreme ruler is of the day. And in Abraham's case, it was a little more true. Sarah was his half-sister. So he's kind of telling a white lie. Isaac's telling a full-blown lie. He's related to Rebecca in a very far-removed situation, but she is not even close to being his sister. Nonetheless, he is doing what he has seen done. Now here is where you are going to be tempted to repeat the past in your relationships. All right? Lazy people repeat the past. Tired people repeat the past. Cowardly people repeat the past. Because here's the deal. If you were raised in a family whose, whose interactions are not something that you want to copy, they're not something you found to be a great example, and you're like, I am charting a new course. I'm going to treat my spouse better than I saw someone being treated. I'm going to do better. And when you are fully caffeinated and you are fully rested and you have fully, like, you know, in your time with Jesus, you can do that. But when you're tired... When you're lazy, when you're feeling scared, you know what you go back to? Factory settings. You know, everything you did to kind of tweak and, and customize the way you were going to behave just goes right back to factory settings, just like an iPhone when you do, and you hit the reset. And now you find yourself repeating the same things and doing the, the same horrible things that you saw done or you experienced as a child, all right? So when we are scared, we tend to repeat the past and we must be intentional about overcoming our factory settings, all right? The path of least resistance is often what we were first exposed to and, uh, and the way we saw people relate in our childhood or how we reacted to it. Either one. We have to stay close to Jesus if we're going to forge new roads of behavior. 
It takes effort to push past our self-serving instincts of survival. So when God is saying, stay in this place, I will be with you, do you believe it? If you're struggling to trust God, you will begin to fight for your own survival in ways that are less than helpful. My, my husband was a lifeguard for many years, and he used to tell me about the fact that if you go up to, excuse me, to help somebody who's drowning, and they begin to fight you, you have to, you have to incapacitate them in a way that they can't take you down, because when we are frightened... Our instincts do not serve us well, and we'll fight the very thing that's helping us. So, beware of your factory settings when you're scared. Number two, it can take a pagan to challenge and expose our bad behavior. Now, I use the word pagan because I'm in the Old Testament. I'm talking about somebody who served other gods. In our current culture, I would say an unbeliever. It can often take a non-believer, an unbeliever, somebody who does not yet follow Jesus to expose your bad behavior. Has it happened to you yet? Have you been at work and had somebody go, really? I thought you were a Christian. Christians use that kind of language? Really? Is that what you do? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have been humiliated by that. When I was doing something and, and I kind of knew it wasn't right or whatever, and somebody challenged, somebody called me on the carpet for that, I'm telling you, God will use other people to remind us of what we have, and, and they will show you up, and it's humiliating. And I think, oh, it's so hard to get people to come to church and to follow Jesus. Maybe it isn't that they don't want to follow Jesus. Maybe they don't want your troubled marriage. Maybe they want to follow a God whose followers treat their neighbors better. Maybe they would like to follow a God whose followers behave better at kids' ball games and competitions. And we're all just embarrassing. Who wants to sign up for that? I think it's, it's important that the, that the non-believers in Scripture, the people who aren't following Jesus, are sometimes the heroes of the story that are like, what are you doing? You should know better than that. And yes, you may be appalled by this patriarchal society described in Genesis, and it was a different culture, but I'm telling you what, even the heathens knew that's not how you honor your wife. That's not how you honor your spouse. There's a better way to respect that. Now, to be fair, they were more troubled with Isaac's deception of them and what they were going to get into. And, and if Isaac wants to disavow his wife, that's up to them. But they, do, they are not interested in being pulled into any kind of offense that's going to uh, bring on the wrath of the Hebrew God. But here's a thought. Do you have enough people in your life who don't love Jesus that keep you honest that's an important reality. We don't have to isolate ourselves in our society. We need to insulate ourselves in our society and be a good example because God will use other people to remind us of what we have. Number three, if God calls you to a scary place, it's up to him to keep you alive. If God calls you to a scary place, it's up to him to keep you alive. Sometimes we accept the promise of God, but we can't commit to the inconvenience, and we find ourselves trying to help God out. We're trying to find ways to help him keep us alive. That's exactly what Isaac is doing. And listen to me, if God is telling you to do something, it's up to him. It's on him to keep you alive. When we moved to Kentucky, we knew we were supposed to come here, but we did not have a dedicated income yet. The church we were coming to help was not able to 
to pay us. And I just remember going, God, it is up to you. I'm coming, but you better pay this bill because I believe in paying bills. So how are we going to do this? And he comes through every time. If his promise is real and the call is real, he will take care of it. Isaac had a huge promise from God. He said, I will be with you and I will bless you. And yet he, he was obedient to stay in the land, but he doesn't have the follow-through by trusting God. Follow-through is as important as the initial decision of obedience. It's just as important as that initial decision. It's tax time, people. If we have to lie and create deception in order to follow God's laws, we're doing something wrong. We're doing, I get the temptation you know, those of you that are fiscally minded are looking for every deduction you can find and you're a little irritated that the code has changed and I hear people grumbling about it already. You know what? God gave you money. Pay the bill. Pay the taxes. That's what God has called us to do. Whether you feel like it's just or not, do not fall into a trap of being deceitful or lying. We're just trying to protect ourselves when it's up to God to do that. God will not take you somewhere. He won't take care of you. If he calls you to go, he will make a way. If he calls you to stay, he will protect you in that place. And if he call, Or he will take you home, which could also be his plan. If his plan was to let the Philistines kill Isaac, Isaac had a better place to go. It's okay. Submit to that. God, so, so anyway, let me, let me get to this last part. Here's the crazy part. And, and before I say this, I want you to know we do not preach a prosperity gospel here, meaning that we don't believe that if you do things right, God's going to give you the million dollars that you want. That's not how God works. However, notice this. God fulfills his promise to Isaac after he finally gives Rebekah the honor she deserves. Notice how it falls in this scripture. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him and the man became rich and his wealth began to grow until he became very wealthy. But notice Isaac had lived there a long time. Scripture says a long time before Abimelech notices that she is really his wife. During that period of time, it, it would seem to me that he was not reaping a hundredfold. But once he finally ponies up, when he finally says, yes, she is my beloved, when he finally gives her the honor that she deserves, God's blessing unfolds on him. God's blessing unfolds on him. In the same year that he finally confesses his marriage, owns his position, acknowledges her, is willing to risk life and limb, that is when he finally experiences God's blessing and plan for his life. So now for you, where is God waiting on you to trust him with your well-being before you experience the fullness of his plans for his life? Maybe you've been asking for something, you've been waiting for something, you're like, God, I know you're bringing this in my life, I just don't know when it's going to be. And he's like, when, it, when you finally decide to trust me, when you finally decide to be honest and quit building these hedges around you, when you quit trying to save your own life and let me do it. That's when I'm going to come through for you. That's when the blessing is going to come for you. Where have you been trying to help God keep you alive? Where have you been trying to help God keep his own promise? How about this? Where have you failed to honor your spouse with the love and respect that they deserve? 
because you're so busy just trying to protect yourself. And you've been thinking about me instead of us too long. Let's come to our feet. If you're new here, this is how we like to close out our services. These people up here are prayer team, and they are ready to pray with you. And any time during this last song, you can come up to them. If you, are come, if you need to come up and surrender to Jesus, we would love that, and you, we will baptize you tonight. If you would like to come up and have prayer over something that's going on in your life or something that God has spoken to you about during this message, you are free to walk up anytime during this last song and have someone pray for you.